set, we have our shoebox display set up again in the back of the church. Um, we are doing shoeboxes again. Operation Christmas Child is a program through Samaritan's Purse. Our job is to fill shoeboxes with toys and hygiene products and um, school supplies, uh, some clothes maybe. You can put a t-shirt or um, socks or something like that in there if you wish. But we fill the, the shoeboxes and then uh, Samaritan's Purse sends them all over the world. And uh, with each shoebox, then um, the children who receive it also hear the gospel and can be enrolled in like a Sunday school program to learn more about who Jesus is. And many of you guys have done this in the past, so it's the same as it was before, except for a couple things. It's $9 instead of $7 for shipping this year. Shipping has gone up a little bit, um, but I think it's the first time it's gone up as long as I remember. And then uh, this year, no toothpaste or candy can go in the boxes because of customs. You can use the boxes that we have available in the back, the green and red ones, or you can uh, purchase the plastic shoe boxes. They're really cheap, like a dollar a piece, um, and use those, and those can be reused again by the families or the children that receive the boxes. If you have any questions, I'll be back here for the next three weeks. Our collection week, well, we kind of have two collection weeks. The first date, the first big date to bring it back would be November 12th. The last date that you can possibly bring it back is the 19th. Uh, we'll be loading the boxes that day and delivering them to New Hope so they can be on their way. I think that's it. I'm going to ask uh, Rod Clarkson. Rod, are you here? Where you at, man? Where's Rod? Yeah, there he is. Uh, I'm going to ask Rod, I, this is kind of impromptu, I just asked him before the service if he would just kind of give us a highlight preview of the Haiti trip, and then uh, we hope to hear more later. So Rod, just uh, give us a couple of highlights from the trip. Thank you, Steve. We had a great trip to Haiti. Uh, it's, uh, we had about seven men from church here uh, that went. Uh, we... Um, I uh, would like to, uh, I would like to recognize him just briefly here uh, for doing a good job. Bob Kelmer is not here. I don't know how you can travel to Haiti and back. You arrive at the Des Moines airport, and your wife picks you up and takes you to Alabama. How can it get any worse than that? I don't know. But, but anyway, I think he'd have needed a little time to recover, but uh, he's working on his motorcycle, whatever. But anyway, um, uh, we had a, had a great trip. Uh, we have a gentleman here in our midst who started going to Haiti 17 years ago. This was his 17th trip. Bob Vaughn, Bob, stand up, would you please, so everybody knows his name. Uh, some of you may know uh, Tom Keller. I know you know him. He uh, has been there 12 times. Uh, we have uh, several others. Um, uh, where's Tom Baird? Um, stand up, Tom, there you go. And, uh, and uh, Tom was there. Norb Metzler was his first trip. Tom's been there several times. Norb's first trip, he's back in the back. It was my first time there. Uh, we had, um, uh, we had uh, several, several others that uh, uh, we were very happy to have. I gotta make sure I, I, I uh, don't miss anybody. And then uh, uh, Tom Noonan, some of you know, 
uh, was there, and we were accompanied by five women, three from Michigan and two uh, from Iowa, one Carol and one in, in uh, Waverly. And uh, so they, they had been there, uh, the one in Carol's been there several times, she was awesome. The women from uh, Michigan were awesome. These people have a great heart for people. Uh, some of the things that we did, I shared in the first service, just a couple things I'll reiterate, a couple things that really got my attention. Number one, you know, it's, it's so depressing from the poverty standpoint when you've not experienced this and seeing how the people live there. It's very uplifting from a Christian standpoint when you see the number of ministries that are going on. There's so much money being poured into, uh, into Haiti, uh, lots of people there uh, working, uh, uh, doing the Lord's work. But we had two of the ladies in, in, uh, uh, from Michigan were involved in, uh, they did several days at the deaf school. The school for the deaf, if you're born deaf in Haiti, your chances of living are not good because nobody wants you. And I remember these two uh, go out there because uh, they do sign language and they could help do some Bible study stuff and uh, Sunday school stuff and do it in sign language. But I remember we all went out to visit the deaf school and there's been a lot of money contributed because the facilities were, were really, really good. But I've never seen so many kids wanting hugs. I mean, we hugged them and hugged them and hugged them. They come back to you four or five times because I'm sure they never get any, anything in, in regards to love and never experienced it. And that was very, very humbling, but it was great there. Uh, Tom and uh, Tom and, and Norb, not only did they uh, uh, put desks together at the uh, hospital, um, you know, they have these pieces all over the place, they can't put them together, and these two guys, along with Tom Keller, went in and, and put things together, but they also went to the library several days and, and spoke to adults and spoke to kids, and I think about, uh, was it 15 or 17 kids? No, I was close, 22 kids accepted Christ because of their mission there at the library. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that was tremendous. So, um, and, and uh, I, I shared this story also with the fact that uh, uh, we, last Sunday morning we were fellowshipping in a, in a uh, Baptist church. Uh, and of course in, in Haiti they speak Creole, okay? So uh, that's a combination of the native language and French, okay? so. Uh, uh, my French isn't too bad. I've had a little bit of that, but uh, Creole's bad. But the pastor spoke not only in Creole, but he spoke in English so we could understand what was being said. It was, it was very good, and they asked us to share some stuff, some things that we were doing. But uh, one, of the, uh, one of the things that after the church service was over, I saw this lady, little old lady. She's, uh, she wasn't even five feet tall, uh, and I, would, I can't tell how old she was uh, I, just by looking at her from she looked like she could be 80 years old, and, and she was hunched over, and she was walking. She'd been in the church service, and she was walking home, and she was taking these little steps, just about like this, with a cane, and she's walking down the street, and I'm, I'm not sure how I should handle this. You know, she can't hardly, she can't hardly move because there's nobody else, she's nobody there taking her home, nobody guiding her where she should be, um, and so I'm, I'm, little, you know, I walked behind her for a while, and I thought. I don't want somebody to think that I'm stalking her or anything like that. And, um, and so I just kind of watched her for a few minutes and I, I just wasn't sure what to do. Well, the experienced lady from Carol, who's been there five or six times and just takes charge of everything. <laughs> well, I, um, she happened to see her too, but I didn't know till that night 
every night we sit around after dinner and we say we tell everybody about the good things that happened to us that day and the bad things that happened and we share with the other people in our in our, our troop and and uh, so she started telling about coming home from church and she ran across this elderly lady who was having trouble getting home and she just described and it was the same woman i'm talking to you about uh ann is our friend from uh carol area and picks this woman up and puts her on her shoulders and carries her home okay she went up the hill tough she had to set her down a couple times carry this woman home the day before Ann had set, up, set out to go visit 50 widows and give them certain uh, special lights that we had for them and some other uh, some other things that were they were specifically selected they didn't get to everybody's house one of the widows who she was supposed to go see was this woman who was coming back from the church so not only did Ann carry her up to her house, the next day she went back and visited her and gave her the things that she could give her before. And so it's just when you watch people like this, um, it's, it's very uplifting. Like I said, it's very disheartening um, to see the way they live. But there are a lot of people doing great things there. Uh, we went in, and I'll make this really brief, I promise. We went to this, uh, uh, we went to this place called Many Hands for Haiti. It's a ministry. And they had beautiful facilities there, too, because they have a whole lot of people donating to them, and they bring people out and teach them how to be parents and, and how to raise their kids, and, and they feed people through uh, meals from the heartland, provide meals for them who, uh, here in Des Moines. And the Many Hands for Haiti is a ministry out of Pella, Iowa. And the two direct, the husband and wife that direct this thing are from Pella. And so here we are from so many miles away, and... and um, and when we end up going out there. So anyway, we're very thankful for being able to be part of that and thank uh, Bob Vaughn for his faithful service and all the years he's done there. Bob, it's like he knows everybody in Haiti. You know, he, he walks down the street. Hey, Rod, we're going for a walk at 630 this morning. I say, good, Bob, have a good time. Um, you know, <laughs> so they're out there. He's out there walking at six and they go for walks at night and um, uh, and uh, just having a chance to interact with people. So uh, it was a great thing if you ever have an opportunity to go. And I know I talked to Bob this morning. He's looking forward to next year. So anyway, we'll see how that goes. But thank you for uh, Steve for that. All right, praise God. Uh, we were grateful that the guys are back safely, and I just can't encourage you enough to uh, go up and just don't do this. Just don't go. Well, how was your trip? And then expect to get an answer in 20 seconds. Okay, so it, don't, don't leave them hanging like that. Let's pray. Father, uh, just thank you so much for uh, your spirit's work in Haiti and through uh, the guys and gals who are on the team that just came back. I thank you for safety. I thank you for protection. I thank you for ministry that was effective and fruitful for the kingdom. And I pray uh, that as we continue to worship you, Lord, through the opening of your word that you would speak to our hearts by your grace and for your power and for and, and in your glory and for your glory we pray it in jesus name amen the foundations upon which the twin towers of the world trade center were constructed uh, and uh, I think, do we have, uh, I want to see those pictures, yeah, the tw Twin Towers, some of you maybe have never seen them when they were actually up, it's being, it's actually been reconstructed now. The, the foundation rests on the bedrock, or rested on the bedrock, 70 feet below the surface. 
So they went down 70 feet to put the foundations up for these buildings. Massive buildings that rose 1,792 feet above the ground. And the reason for the foundations being so deep was because in order for them to stand for a long period of time, they needed a firm foundation. They needed a rock-solid foundation. They needed to be there, so down there, so that it wouldn't waver or falter. The believers, or the professed believers, to whom John was writing in this book that we're now beginning to study in 1 John, these professed believers had supposedly become Christians a long time ago. They had been Christians for quite a while. And they were pretty well versed in the truths of the Christian faith, or at least they supposedly understood what was in the Bible. Kind of think about a lot of people who grew up in the church, very similar to the people that John is writing to, know a lot about what's in the Bible. But as D. Edmund Hebert says in his introduction to the New Testament epistles, he says this, there had crept in a want of brotherly love, a development of spiritual laxity and internal dissensions and a lessening of their steadfastness in their fellowship with the Father and the Son. Over the course of time, there is a danger in the church for us to become kind of apathetic kind of indifferent, kind of like, well, we know that, but we don't really do that, which the Bible tells us to do. That's the case in the church that John is writing to. It is the case in many churches, and may I say that it's a danger at Creekside, that we become so aware of the truth that we aren't really actively living out the truth. And so in order to give us, in order to give them first, the readers, the listeners, the hearers to whom Paul or John wrote, and to give us confidence that we have our faith is rooted and grounded, that we actually do possess that which we profess, that we possess this relationship with God through faith in His Son, Jesus. John writes this letter, and he starts with the foundation that we're going to build this faith on. And then he rebukes false teaching. And he roots them in the truth. And then he reveals to them the kind of living that is consistent with profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Hebert again goes on, he says, the epistle advances a series of tests to be applied to Christians' profession on the basis of which the believer's assurance of eternal life can be established. In the coming weeks, we're going to look at the tests. We're going to apply those tests to ourselves. We're going to see the framework of authentic faith. But before we go to the framework, we're going to look at the foundation upon which that authentic faith is built. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to... First John, okay? So you go clear to the end of the Bible, which is Revelation, and start going backwards, and you're going to get to First John quicker than if you started in Genesis, okay? So First John is First, Second, Third John, Jude, and Revelation, okay? First John. And we're going to look at the framework of authentic faith, which is 
which is built on the foundation, the foundation of two important facts. Facts regarding the identity, the ministry, the message of Jesus. I'm in 1 John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 4. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we behold, beheld, and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Two facts. The first is the proof of Christ's true identity, his true ministry, his true message. What is the proof that Jesus really is the Christ? It's laid out for us in the text, and there are two proofs of his reality, uh, to his deity and his humanity and his ministry. So basically what I see in the first verse, and actually the first two verses, is a validation that Jesus is truly God and truly man. First of all, his personal testimony. If you look at verse 2, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim. And then if you look at verse 3, and what we have seen and heard, we proclaim. The main verb in these four verses is the word proclaim. So everything else in these verses has to do with the substance of what they proclaimed. What is it they're talking about? the substance of what John and the apostles proclaimed. So all of the relative clauses, that's what you call these things, not like I'm the great English scholar, but that's what you call these when it says what was, what was, what was, what was, that what is a, introduces a relative clause. All of those clauses focus on a description of the end of verse 1, the word of life. They all describe and relate to the word of life. What was in the beginning? Or from the beginning. It says, what was from the beginning? The word of life. Key phrase there, word of life. What is the word of life? The word of life is a reference to the person of Jesus. The word of life is a grammatical construction which basically equates the word and life. The word which is life. Okay, So it is the word who is life, which is life. And the parallel with the Gospel of John is undeniable. The Gospel of John, beginning with verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He himself was with God, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So... We're talking about the word of life, Jesus. And the text that we have is of what was from the beginning. So what was from the beginning? What is the beginning? The beginning of what? Creation? No. Uh, the birth of Jesus? No. What was from the beginning is eternity past. What we have here is a declaration that the word of life, the word which is life, the word, the life, 
has always existed. It's the pre-existence of Jesus that's being declared by John here. Which is the same thing he declared in the Gospel of John. In the beginning, same beginning, same beginning. Was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. So God has always existed. The pre-existence of Jesus is declared here. And so in both of these, the Gospel of John and in the Epistle of John, the beginning refers to the same thing, the Word refers to the same thing, and the life refers to the same thing. The Word is Jesus. And Jesus has always existed. He's eternally pre-existent. He was from the beginning. Not He came into being in the beginning. He always was. When I was in Hungary several years ago, I visited a church. And we went to this church, and it was an old building, an old structure, and I was told that this church began the year Columbus discovered America. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's interesting. We have century farms. I mean, we think like, well, that's, you know, that's a big deal. You know, this farm's been in the family for 100 years. This church got started in 1492. It began. What John declared in his gospel and in this epistle is Jesus never began. He always was. Eternally preexistence. The word was life. The word of life. He was the word which always has begun. He never began. He was created. What is the word? What is a word? Jean-Marie Galushka. Know what that is? No. Um, Rod's French is pretty good. Maybe his Creole is, is better. You know, uh, police bruchet? That's a speed bump in Haiti. Okay? It's a speed bump in Haiti. It's a hidden police. They call it the hidden police because it s slows you down even when you didn't want to slow down. Words have meanings. In, in, in America, what's the word bad mean? Not good, but if you have a bad car, that's a good car. What does sick mean? It means you're not feeling well or that's really nasty. But if, if you eat some sick food... Man, that's, that's like, that's good food. How can people learn English? It makes no sense. But the Word, here we say the Word was not created. He always existed. And the Word is an expression which communicates meaning. So what we're saying here, what John is saying here, is that Jesus is the Word of life, the Word who is life, who brings life. He is the God's communication, God's revelation of His message to the world in His person and in His proclamation. Jesus is the incarnation of God's message to the world. He is the Word of God. He is, Jesus is the embodiment of the revelation. In Hebrews chapter 1, 
the writer of Hebrews says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, through his son, through who, uh, who he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the world. Verse 3 says, and the, uh, Hebrews chapter 3 says, he is the exact representation of his nature. He's the picture of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Jesus is God in the flesh. So he is the word. He's God's message to mankind in his person and in his proclamation. Jesus is it. One of my favorite movies is The Incredibles. Okay, It's not my all-time favorite, but Flash in The Incredibles is the embodiment of his name. Right? He's fast. It's flash. That's it. Jesus is the embodiment of God. The Word become flesh. And so John goes on to tell us that the, there are four tangible proofs that the life that is Jesus that they encountered is real. Not some figment of their imagination. This person, Jesus, and his proclamation is real. And that's the relative clauses in verse 1. He says, what we have heard. I always find it interesting that they referred to Jesus as a what. What we have heard. I was driving back to Albert City one Tuesday afternoon and I heard something dragging, rubbing on the pavement as I was driving the van. I heard it. These apostles and John had heard Jesus speak. I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. They had heard Jesus. Now, not just had they heard Jesus, but notice the text goes on to say what we have seen with our eyes. I got out of the van after I stopped and I looked and I saw a piece of the undercarriage, plastic undercarriage. Isn't it interesting that they have plastic that's supposed to protect your engine underneath of your vehicle? That doesn't make much sense, but it's there, and now it's dragging on the ground, on the pavement. I saw it with my eyes. They saw Jesus with, with their eyes. They personally encountered the Word who had become flesh. That's John 1.14, and the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. They saw Him with their eyes. But he didn't stop there. It was no fleeting glance. It says, and what we beheld. What does it mean to behold something? To behold means to you gaze at it to long enough so that the significance of its reality becomes known to you. They had looked at Jesus long enough to know that he really is the Christ. When Marla and I were dating, some of you don't, most of you probably don't know this. She has an identical twin sister, okay? 
So we were dating, and they thought it'd really be cute to try to pull one over on me. So I showed up on a Sunday morning, and uh, Marla was ironing my shirt for church. And so down the steps, she came carrying this shirt and then said, here's your shirt. And it was her sister, Darla, trying to imitate Marla. And I knew right away that that wasn't Marla. Why? How did I know that? Because I had beheld Marla. I had gazed upon her. I had gotten to know her, understood the significance of who this person was, and that wasn't her. They had beheld him. And then the text says, so they had beheld. They had seen Jesus at his baptism. They had seen Jesus in his interactions with people in the Garden of Gethsemane they had seen him, in the crucifixion and in the resurrection they had beheld. This is not just an ordinary human being. This is the Christ. That's Who are you, Peter? Who am I? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yeah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Heavenly Father has revealed this to you. They grasp the significance. And then... The final thing, the, the final kicker that nails it down is, is what our hands have handled. We touched him. Now, it's not like they're just, you know, like holding hands with Jesus. No, they had actually physically rubbed shoulders. It's Jesus who broke the bread and gave it to them, and then they distributed it to the 5,000. They had had physical contact with Jesus. Every time there is this sensory perception that only accentuates the reality of this person, Jesus, as the Christ. I had physical contact with the zip tie that I used to attach the undercarriage of my van to the bumper. I touched it. It's not a figment of my imagination. Jesus was no figment of their imagination. They knew Jesus personally. Now, some of you sitting there saying, good, I'm glad you brought that up. Because they knew Jesus personally. They had seen him and they had touched him and they'd beheld him and all this stuff. We can't do that now. So there's really no way that we can know Jesus like they know Jesus. I'd like to submit to you that that's not true. Yes, we cannot physically touch Jesus, but we can know him in every much as they did, apart from that physical tangibleness, in this way. The reality and the richness of their relationship with Jesus was encouraged by their physical contact with him. But it was ultimately dependent upon their spiritual connection. It was that they beheld him, that they had a relationship with Jesus because they believed he was the Messiah. They trusted him as their Savior and Lord. Remember the words of Jesus to Thomas in John chapter 20, verse 29? Because you have touched me, you believe? How blessed the last beatitude. How blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. Do you understand if you're sitting here this morning and you're trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are more blessed than the apostles who actually touched him. 
Isn't that weird? It's really cool. That, that we have believed and have yet not seen him. And so we can have the same relationship, the reality of Jesus as the life who alone gives life is reason to trust him for life. Then there's the historical reality. It's a personal testament. They give them the historical reality. If you look at verse 2, and the life was manifested. How is it that that which was from the beginning, which they had seen and heard and seen and beheld and touched. How is it that he was made visible to them? How is it that this self-existent word, the giver, the embodiment of life, it wasn't that he just was this God. He was God in the flesh. Notice the text says was manifest. He wasn't created. He was manifest. Jesus didn't come into existence in the incarnation. He was just made visible. He has always existed, but he was made visible. The eternal and self-existent word of life, the giver embodiment of life, was manifested. Paul says in Galatians 4, and when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that those of us who are under the law might receive the adoption as sons. In God's time, He sent His Son, who has always existed with Him, to be made manifest to us so that He could be seen and heard and beheld and touched. That's what John is declaring to us Jesus, the manifestation, fully God. The Word became flesh. God's Word, God's revelation to man became flesh. He's from the beginning. Look at verse 2. It says, And proclaim to you the eternal life which was from with the Father. The eternal life which was with the Father is Jesus. He was with the Father. Fully God and fully man. He was heard, He was touched, He was seen. This is what we proclaim to you. They saw the person of Jesus. They confirmed the person of Jesus. And they proclaimed the person and the message of Jesus. Because, see, Jesus is not just a person. He's the message. He's not only the message, but the messenger. He proclaimed who he is, and he is who he is. He is salvation, and yet he proclaims salvation. There is salvation. Paul said, I think it was Paul, it was, neither is there salvation in any other, but there's no other name under heaven among men which it were by you must be saved. Acts 4.12. Be saved. I'm going to stand here, I'm telling you. I, I have seen and I have had personal encounter with, confirmed the reality of a grizzly bear in the wild. I was hiking a trail near Bozeman, Montana, several years ago, and saw this grizzly bear digging grubs or something out of a dead log. I was by myself. I was stupid enough to stop and take a picture. 
not smart enough to use my electronic zoom so I could zoom in really close. I was about 40 yards away from this grizzly bear. And even more insane part of it was, I was walking this way, and I walked that way for several miles, and then turned around and went back, because that was the way to my car. I saw the bear. I didn't touch the bear. But I beheld the bear. That was a grizzly bear. I had my bear spray. Really felt safe. You know, if you use bear spray, you got to make sure you're downwind uh, or upwind when you use it. You know, <laughs> bears coming at you, you're going to test the wind to make sure you don't spray it and blows in your face. No, these people had beheld Jesus. This is really Jesus Christ, and you know, we. He says, which in the Old Testament, we a, a testimony is confirmed on the basis of. Two witnesses. It's a certain thing. In John 19, 35, uh, J J John says that we saw. He who has seen and was born witnesses, as he's talking to himself, and the witness is true and knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. I had to ask myself, why does this matter? Now, that's fine. You read the Bible, you don't always ask the same questions I do. But so what difference does it make that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Why should that be important to me? Why should it be important to the people I speak to? A couple of reasons. First of all, it is the guard against heresy. I mean, it's the foundation upon which my faith is built. Your faith, it's the guard against heresy. Did you know that every, almost every single major heresy, heresy has the person and the work of Jesus wrong. They either mess up on the person of Jesus or they mess up on the work of Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the Scientology, you can go down. They, they, they mess up Jesus somewhere along the line. So, you know, you don't have to be an expert on all these other religions. All you have to be an expert on is Jesus. Because if we got Jesus down, then anything that's not Jesus is wrong. And Jesus is fully God and fully man. John's readers were struggling with a, a teaching called Gnosticism. Now, most of us are familiar with the word agnostic, right? So you put an A in front of Gnostic, and you get not knowing one. So they're called they don't know. I like what Spurgeon says. He says the agnostic is simply the Greek word for the Latin ignoramus. And he went further, and he says, so those who say, I don't know if the Bible is true, are, might as well say, I'm, I'm an ignoramus. Because I don't know the Bible is true. Gnostic meant supreme knowledge, and they erred in a couple of ways. Their supreme knowledge said that Jesus was only a man, merely a man. And somehow at his baptism, the divine spirit came to live and coexist with him until the crucifixion, and that was it. They erred on the other side, which said that Jesus was not a man at all, but that he was just the, the spirit of God present on earth. It doesn't really matter. They, they had it messed up. Ironside is right. What is new is not true, and what is true is not new. 
This old stuff. So it's to guard against heresy, this, the person and work of Jesus. He's fully God and fully man. It is the ground of our faith. It is the ground of our certainty. If we're to be certain that we are truly children of God, that what we profess, which is faith in Jesus Christ, is actually what we possess, we got to get this right. It's based on the person and work of Jesus. Jesus himself says, as many as received, John said, as many as received him of Jesus, John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God. Receive who? Jesus. Jesus Christ, not just Jesus the man, not Jesus the God, Jesus the God-man. That his death, although he had to be sinless, and in order to be sinless, he had to be divine. He had to be a satisfactory substitute. In order to be a satisfactory substitute for mankind, he had to be a man. The only way both those conditions are satisfied is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. What was from the beginning. What we have heard, what we have seen, what we have beheld, and what our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Jesus is the word who is life. The word who gives life. And our behavior of those who believe only proves that we possess what we profess. So then there's the proclamation. There is the proof of his identity, his message, and his ministry. Then there is this proclamation of his true identity and ministry and message. What are we supposed to tell people? How many of you, if I ask you, see, we're new to Des Moines. How many of you have a favorite restaurant in the area? Come on, raise your hands. This is class participation. How many of you have a favorite restaurant there? Right. And you would not hesitate a moment to tell me what your favorite restaurant was. I said, well, what's your, what's your favorite restaurant? Where's your place, your favorite vacation spot? Oh, yeah, I can tell you my favorite vacation spot. You see... If I have a true possession of a relationship with God through faith in His Son, Jesus, then for me to tell you what God has done in my life shouldn't be a problem. Shouldn't be any more difficult than telling you my favorite restaurant, my favorite vacation spot. That's what John says we, the apostles, are doing. We're just proclaiming to you. And the purpose of the proclamation is twofold. First of all, so that you had to have fellowship, to promote fellowship. Jesus is God in the flesh. And the message of salvation to all men through the person and work of Jesus is given so that they might have fellowship. So they too might be children of God. And in relationship, you know what, what is fellowship? That's kind of a Bible word. You know, I come to church, I hear this fellowship word. I don't, we don't use that. In, I mean, community, that's the vernacular of today's culture fellowship and community basically it's there's a connection and the connection among believers is the presence of the spirit of god which unites us whether i'm in haiti whether i'm in hungary or whether i'm in urbandale every believer i'm telling you i'll bet you and I, you asked these guys that were in haiti when you were introduced to somebody could you tell if you were in the presence of a believer was it hard? Norb says, no problem. How is that possible? I've been in different countries in the world, and it is almost like there's a magnet between believers. It's the presence of the Spirit of God, and John says, we're writing these things to you. We're proclaiming Jesus so that you would have 
fellowship. Your fellowship would be with us. Other believers. He wants them to know that they're connected with other believers. As John Stott says, it's common participation in the grace of God. It's the presence of the Spirit, which happens because we put our faith or our trust in Jesus. And there's a sign. If you're driving down Highway 3, which you probably aren't very often, but down Highway 3, which is way in northwest Iowa, and you go right by the, the sign for Albert City. And, or if you're on Highway 10, which is six miles north, you see the sign for Albert City. Or if you're on N28, which is going north into Lorenz, you see the sign for Albert City. It says, how sweet it is. S-W-E-D-E. -E, how sweet it is. So, if you're German, or Dutch, or Indian, or Congolese, or some other race, ethnic group, or whatever, how do you feel? Well, I guess I don't belong there, because it's only for Swedes. Communion in the body of Christ has no racial, ethnic, geographic, economic, barrier. We are one in Jesus. And John says, I'm writing these things to you who have been believers, professed believers for a long time. You may not really be believers, but I want you to be believers because our horizontal connection is dependent upon our vertical communion with Christ and, his, and with God through Christ. And if we have this vertical thing going, we have this horizontal thing going. And he says, I want to make sure that you know that you are children of the living God. I have had the blessed privilege of praying with brothers and sisters in Christ, hearing them pray and preach in Creole, in Hungarian, and in other languages. And I'm telling you what, the Spirit of God is present, and the Spirit of God is powerful, and the Spirit of God is, brings communion even when you don't understand the language. And that's what John says, I want you to have that. I want to make sure that you know that you are a child of God. One of my best friends in the world is, the, is a pastor in a denomination. If I mentioned it, you would cringe probably. You'd say, how can, what? He and his wife love Jesus. And they're trying to bring the light of the gospel into a dark place. They know Christ, and we have blessed communion. That's what he says, only as the truth of Christ, who died on the cross as the sinless sacrifice, sufficient sacrifice as a human being is proclaimed, will unbelievers, those who don't know Jesus, enter into, they'll repent and enter into communion. If you're here this morning and you say, well, I don't know, I'm not sure, I'm into one, I'm not, maybe I feel like I'm a Swede, you know, in church. Proclaim to you Jesus Christ who died on the cross to pay your sins so that if you turn from your sin and trust his death as a payment you deserve, you will be rescued and brought into the family of God. And it knows no race, it knows no creed, it knows no language, it knows no geographic, economic barrier. It is the fellowship with the children of God. And, and, and as we proclaim Christ, those who know Christ, those who are 
believers will remain true and experience deeper communion because it is our union with Christ that makes us one. Enables us to put aside, you know, some of us are a little annoying. You know? Some of us just kind of a little eccentric. Some of us just have little quirks and weirdness, according to other people, you know. I mean, I'm not weird to me, I'm just weird to you, okay? But in the body of Christ, you can overlook that because we have this bond in Jesus. And then he does it to perfect joy. It's interesting in verse 4, and, and, and these things we write so that some translations say your joy might be made full, and the New American Standard says that our joy might be made full. I think our joy might be made full is right, because John is writing to these people who professed faith in Jesus, the ones they had proclaimed the gospel to, salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, and he proclaims to them that he and the apostles' joy might be made full. How does that happen? Third John 4. I have no greater joy than this, than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. There's no greater joy than if we share the gospel of Jesus with people, that they receive the message of salvation and that they live out. You see, if we live what we profess, then it proves we actually do possess it. And when we possess what we profess, those who proclaim it to us are rejoicing because we are really in the family of God. The foundation upon which authentic faith is built is the substance, the substance of Christ's identity, his ministry, and his message, and submission to the same. It's the substance of it. It's the reality of it, who he is and what he says, and it is submission to the same. If we have that down, then we are on firm ground. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And each Sunday, as we celebrate communion, as we take these elements we join the apostles in proclaiming the true identity and the true message of Jesus. He's fully God and he's fully man. His ministry and his message, he lived a sinless, as, a, as a sinless sacrifice. He is a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. So every fallen man and woman, which we all are there, every fallen man and woman who re- realizes that I deserve his judgment and wrath, who turns from their sin and believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, will be forgiven and free and brought into that family. The bread is a symbol of his body that's broken. The cup is a symbol of his blood that was shed for us. And if you participate in the celebration of communion, you're making a declaration. You also are proclaiming Jesus, as the Christ, you're proclaiming that you personally believe that his death paid the debt you owe and that you are a child of God. And it reminds us of what unites us. It's not our ethnicity. It's not our language. It's not our culture. It's not our city life or our rural life. It is our common bond in Jesus. 
and in that we stand. And so if you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you're certainly welcome to take the elements with us. And if you don't, I know Christ, I invite you to be contemplating it and to say, maybe I need to accept this Jesus who really is the Christ who died to set me free and trust in his death and that alone is the payment for my sin. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to break the bread and uh, our praise team's going to come and lead us. Father, I thank you for the foundation firm foundation upon which authentic faith is built, the person, the work of Jesus. Give us grace to trust you in it, Father. Those of us who don't know you, I pray that we would see that this is not some figment of the apostle's imagination, but he's a real person who was the real son of God, who is God in the flesh, who alone could pay the debt that I owe. I pray that they would, we would turn and receive you by faith. And those of us who know you may be blessed encouragement in our souls. May we understand what it means to live for you and enjoy that communion and fellowship and that our joy might be made full as we share the gospel and see others living in the truth. We pray in Jesus' name. See